I am very happy to welcome Robert or Jeff McRae to our podcast. Jeff's names and work are known to most people who have been following personality science over the last 40 or so years. He's among the most recognized and cited among personality psychologists, and indeed, I think, among the psychologists across the whole discipline. His work has been key, for example, to establishing the five-factor model, or the big five, as a dominant model for describing and measuring personality traits. The model is known throughout psychology, as well as by many people in the public. Yes, I'm talking about the so-called ocean model of personality that, for example, many children now learn about at school. What really stands out in Jeff's long career for me is the thoughtful and methodological manner in which he has examined the five-factor model, its properties and its measurement. With Paul Costa in particular, they embarked on a remarkably systematic and long research program. For example, they systematically explored the extent to which a broad range of personality traits can be mapped into the five-factor model, proving it's being an overarching framework of personality traits. Then, by using data from different types of raters, they established that the five-factor model is not only an artifact of people's self-ratings, because their traits and their properties can also be replicated across different assessment methods. Then, by measuring the five-factor model in dozens of countries across the whole world, they explored the universality of the model itself and the key properties of the personality traits in the model, such as their age and gender differences, their stability, irritability and cultural differences. Then, they explored how strongly lay intuitions about personality traits, such as gender, age or cultural stereotypes, converge with the personality traits of actual people. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. Jeff and Paul Costa also developed a five-factor theory which articulates a comprehensive theoretical framework for human personality based on the results of their empirical research. Among other things, the five-factor theory postulates that there is more to personality than just traits, or what the theory calls basic tendencies. For example, there are also characteristic adaptations that accommodate the basic tendencies within the particular environments that people happen to live in. Also, the five-factor theory postulates that the most fundamental aspects of personality, basic tendencies, are insulated from the direct influence of life experiences. This is a proposal that most people find very hard to agree with, but it has been remarkably hard to prove wrong. Well, so far anyway. We will talk about all these topics in the podcast. I think there are few people in a better position to discuss personality and personality science than Jeff. Without further ado then, here is my interview with Jeff McRae. Hi Jeff, it's really great to have you on the Personality Psychology Podcast. And I'm especially excited about the possibility to chat with you because I don't think we've ever actually talked before even though we have written quite a few papers together over the last uh, few years and exchanged what I think must be hundreds of emails by now. I think we will cover quite a lot of ground in this podcast, but can we start by you giving your definition of personality? You don't start your career by defining what you're going to be studying and then do it for the rest of your career. It's something that evolves over time. And, and what has evolved with us is something called five-factor theory, which is a theory of personality. And what it says basically is that personality is a psychological system in the individual 
that adapts the person to the needs and the opportunities that the situation and the environment present in ways that are unique and characteristic to that particular individual. And so the whole field of individual differences spins off on that uniqueness and the different ways in which people adapt to the same situation. That's what makes their personality unique. So there are many fields in psychology, and each of them has some unique remits. What do you think, in which ways is personality trait science unique among other fields of psychology? Personality trait psychology, like astronomy, is an observational rather than an experimental discipline. And for the most part, that's true. It's interesting with all the interest now in changing personality, we're going to be seeing a lot more experimental approaches where people will try to modify personality traits. So it will move in that direction. And on the other hand, there are also other disciplines within psychology that are mostly observational. I'm thinking particularly of developmental psychology and uh, psychopathology, abnormal psychology. Much of, of what they do is observation and inference because they really can't manipulate. You, you can't make people grow older any faster than they do. It's also curious that these are the disciplines, developmental and abnormal, that are probably closest to personality psychology. Social psychology is very remote from personality psychology by and large. I say that from a position of ignorance because I, I really don't know that much about social psychology. Uh, for years and years and years, whenever I got a, an issue of JPSP, I would dutifully read the titles of all the articles in the other two sections and occasionally see something interesting enough that I would actually read the abstract for that article. But that happened very, very seldom. The more I think about it, the more confused I am about why personality and social psychology have been yoked together. In the 1960s and for years before, there had been a journal called the Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology, and they split it up and added personality. Well, what they should have done, of course, is made it the Journal of Abnormal and Personality Psychology and then left social as its own. They went the other way around, and, and I don't know why they did that. <laughs> we need a historian of science to tell us why that happened. What do you think are the, some of the biggest advances that the field of personality, trade science in particular, has made over the last, which must be almost a century now? For half of that century, I've been around. I went to graduate school 71 to 75, 76, which was the absolute worst time for trait psychology in its history. Michelle had written Personality and Prediction in 68, in which he argued there's no cross-situational consistency of behavior and personality trait measures don't predict behavior with anything like an interesting amount of variance. Schwader and Dandrade had said, well, the structure of personality is simply an artifact of implicit personality theory. Fisk came along and said, there's no real agreement between different observers on a person's personality trait set, which is fundamental and all of this followed on the decade of the 60s when everybody was obsessed with the failures and the limitations of self-report methods, social desirability, and all the concern about acquiescence. The fact is that in the 1970s, many psychologists, many social psychologists in particular, had come to believe that trait psychology was basically a pseudoscience. It was like phrenology. 
I would have to say that the biggest achievement of trait psychology was pulling us back from that assessment, making it a respectable science again, and doing so by a lot of very sophisticated and diligent work by a whole lot of investigators. Had, had this not happened, I, I know that there were programs in personality that were discontinued at universities. I'm sure that it was hard for people to publish anything to do with trait psychology. I'll tell you a story. In 1995, I submitted a paper to Psych Review and got a fairly short and dismissive review, which ended up with the statement, I thought people proved that traits didn't exist 30 years ago. So as late as 95, someone who's good enough to be a reviewer for Psych Review still thinks the traits are fictions. You refer to some diligent work people have done. What did you mean? Thinking, for instance, of Jack Block's longitudinal studies of children growing into adolescence and young adulthood. I'm thinking of uh, Epstein's work on aggregation, where what he said is you can't do a one-shot experiment and, and learn anything. You have to repeat it over and over again, and then you can see a pattern emerge. There was work in cross-observer agreement. Mm -hmm. Thunder wrote a, a review of that in, I think it was JP in 1980, which was unfortunate for me because I wrote a paper two years later and the reviewers were saying, well, Thunder already did that. I think there was also a lot more attention so that psychometrics became improved. Acquiescence was a real problem. Well, what happened? People started using balanced scales, a very simple uh, solution to, a, to the problem but one that had been ignored in a lot of previous research. The, the, the F scale, for instance, uh, is all keyed in one direction. And so it's difficult to interpret what it's actually measuring. People did longitudinal studies in depth over long periods of time. They got multiple raters. They did twin studies. That was a whole other important aspect. I suppose the most famous is the Telegon study of twins raised apart. Uh, where they recovered twins that had been separated at birth and found essentially the same thing that they found when they were raised in the same family. So all of those things were much more difficult kinds of research than just going out and getting your students to com complete a questionnaire and writing up a correlation between two things. They had to do a lot more work in order to prove essentially what we all believed anyway. Traits were supposed to be enduring dispositions. So using a longitudinal study to prove that they in fact were would have seemed silly, I think, to Gordon Alcourt. But post-Michelle, it had to be done. So basically the work that established traits is, is real things that exist and are enduring over time. And that can be measured independently of just people's self-reports to prove that they exist outside of people's self-ratings alone. The other striking progress is, of course, the five-factor model, and, and in particular, the consensus on the five-factor model, because the five-factor model had been discovered over and over again by different researchers. Fisk himself found a version in, I think it was 49. Toops and Crystal did it. Norman did it. Goldberg did it. And nothing happened. Nobody picked up on it. It didn't have the effect that it should and ultimately did. And the reason that it did was because there was a conscious effort, there was a sort of conspiracy among five-factor enthusiasts to spread the word, to get co-opt other people into the thing, to try to minimize the differences between, for instance, the lexical model and the questionnaire-based model, so that when I edited the 1992 Journal of Personality special issue, I chose as my co-author Oliver John, who was Lou Goldberg's student. 
and who represented the lexical. The point was that, yes, there are differences and we can talk about them and, and argue, but there are also similarities. And therefore, we have a model that non-personality psychologists, developmentalists and cross-cultural psychologists and IO psychologists can say, well, that, there's pretty much agreement on this. We'll use this. It's sort of state-of-the-art, which it was. What are your main contributions to the field? Paul and I made a name for ourselves with the longitudinal studies of, of uh, individual differences or retest stabilities, because at a time when people weren't sure that traits were anything other than attributions, suddenly you're seeing correlations over long 10-year periods and 12-year periods, which are phenomenally large by the standards of personality research. 0.8s, 0.9s, where else in psychology do you see correlations of that magnitude? Not very many places. And we spent a lot of time, we had the great good fortune to have access to two longitudinal studies that other people had set up for us, and we got to bring in the harvest. So that, that was the first thing. I, of the later things that I, I guess the fact that we provided a personality measure is also a, a substantial contribution. And of that, I'm most pleased that from the very beginning, we published the NEO inventories in a Form S and a Form R, self-reports and observer ratings. I think that went a long way to encouraging the use of observers as a source of data. Now it's fairly standard. The Hexaco model, for instance, has an observer rating form. Strelau's temperament inventory has an observer rating form. I think we were the first to do that on a, on a large scale, although obviously there had been observer rating forms of scales before that. Of the other things of my research that I'm most interested in, I think, one is, is the research on openness to experience, because that was essentially this kind of residual fifth factor that nobody knew what to do. They called it culture or intellect. What my research showed was that that actually corresponded to a whole lot of concepts that had been around in isolation. Authoritarianism belongs in that rubric. Telegon's absorption scale belongs in that. Certainly, the, the, um, the scales from Murray's needs, the need for sentience, the need for understanding, that fit neatly into the rubric of openness to experience. I even did a paper looking at the social consequences of openness, mm -hmm. of which there are a number, as the authoritarianism link would suggest. That's a distinctive thing I did. And the other is the, the cross-cultural research and the demonstrations of the universals, both at the level of structure and gender differences and age differences and psychometrics. And in the universals, universal features, I think it's called, of personality traits, I got to quote the 19th century dictum about the psychic unity of mankind. I'm, I sort of pride myself on being able to say, well, I demonstrated the psychic unity of mankind, at least with regard to personality traits, which I think is a good thing to do to remind people that we are all human and that we share a lot of things in common, one of them being the structure of personality. In some ways, it sounds paradoxical because personality science is all about, or at least personality trait science, is all about uh, individual differences. And yet we use, and you have used individual differences to show a whole lot of universals that otherwise wouldn't have been possible to show unless we focused on differences in the first place. Exactly. I suppose if I ask many personality psychologists uh, what were the biggest achievements of our field, 
they would argue that the biggest success story probably is the uh, personality traits correlations with a range of life outcomes in the academic domain and, and career domain, relationships, health, and so on. And I remember that some years ago, you said that you're not really interested in these correlations and indeed actually find them boring. And I have to say at that time, it did surprise me a little, but I suspect that now I may understand what you could have had in mind then. Is this because the associations are typically quite weak and perhaps too weak to be useful for most purposes? Well, the associations are certainly modest, let's say. I don't remember specifically what I was thinking about when I said that, but these kinds of practical applications are just that. They're practical. They're useful if you're trying to predict health outcomes or to select somebody for a, a job. They don't tell you very much about the nature of personality. They're not theoretically very interesting because most of them are sort of obvious. Who exercises more? Well, it's the conscientious people and the extroverts who do that. Who is it that, that wants to take a job as a forest ranger? Well, those are introverts. It's good to know that. It's good to prove it. It has utility, but it's not theoretically all that interesting. So you're effectively argue, saying that the null hypothesis there is not really a null hypothesis. Some associations are a given. It would be very, very unusual indeed if personality traits summarizing what people typically do in their life wouldn't correlate with what people typically do in their life. Yes, that's absolutely true. It, it is, however, also the case that you do need to actually do the research because sometimes your intuitions about what's going on are false. And you need also to be able to look at the magnitude and the relative importance of traits versus other things. The, the fact is, if you look at something like uh, what kind of occupation do you have? We worked with John Holland in his self-directed search, which is widely used and very useful for predicting vocational interests. And vocational interests are related to occupational choice. But most people take whatever job they can find. They don't have the option of saying, well, I'd, I'd like to be an archaeologist. There aren't very many openings in archaeology in my neighborhood. I'd have to have an advanced degree. So life outcomes have multiple determinants, many of them being just essential chance. You can't expect personality to be a powerful predictor of most of them, and it isn't. But even a small predictor can be useful in getting an edge. You know, if you're hiring a thousand employees and you can get a slight improvement in conscientiousness by having them tested, that'll make a difference in your productivity and your outcomes. You were right to say that we have still to do this research because some things that we take for granted that intuitively make a whole lot of sense when we look at them empirically actually turn out to be wrong. For me, one of the examples is parental influences on personality traits. Many theories, and I think almost all lay theories, would say that parents do shape their children's personality. And yet the empirical evidence doesn't really offer a whole lot of support for that. For you, what are the main puzzling findings that personality psychologists have come up with? Exactly that sort of finding that we thought we would find them, but we didn't. And the null finding is actually the interesting finding. Initially, I was at the National Institute on Aging. We were gerontologists. And there were all kinds of theories about adult life and how it would affect anything, including personality. So there were theories of the midlife crisis. People were supposed to develop a crisis in, when they were 30 or 40, 50, depending on who you ask. Um, there were theories about role transitions and you 
have children or your children leave, you have the empty nest, retirement comes along. And I think that the predominant assumption that everybody has was, well, these are major events. They're going to have to have a major impact on people's self-concept and on their personality traits and all of that. But they don't. They have almost no impact on rank order stability of personality. And that was very surprising. It was frankly very unpopular among gerontologists. What we said to them is, well, what you're studying as far as personality is concerned really doesn't much matter. The cross-cultural research was in a similar situation because certainly the, the old culture and personality people from the 30s and 40s assumed that personality was created by the culture primarily through the intervention of parents, through the whole cultural milieu. And consequently, we would expect there to be large differences between cultures and even differences in the structure of personality. Well, that didn't happen. There are differences between cultures in the mean levels, but they are relatively small. Certainly, the differences between any two cultures tend to be much smaller than the differences within cultures of individuals. Whereas if there's a monolithic culture that's shaping personality, it ought to be the other way around. There was a recent paper published in the European Journal of Personality where they tried to predict the culture or country uh, from which certain individuals were from, from personality data. So taking a predictive approach. So the culture was the outcome variable. And there they were able to predict whether somebody was, for example, from Australia versus from the UK, from US, with close to 90% of accuracy. I find that surprising. Certainly, if you could predict the difference between someone from Australia and someone from Uganda or Japan, because Australians are much more extroverted than those other people. The distinction between the UK and Australia is a fairly subtle one. We did a, a paper with Yuri Alec on the geography of personality traits. And one of the things we did was we clustered traits according to the countries, according to the mean profiles. And what you find over here on the right side of the map is UK, Australia, Canada, United States, all of the English-speaking and basically English-origin countries. And on this side, you find China and Japan and Korea and also the African countries, all of which share somewhat similar profiles, primarily in terms of, of introversion, extroversion. Yeah, there certainly are patterns. And I think this is what these findings are hinting at, that the individual effect sizes tend to be very, very small and surprisingly small, as you say. But yet there are these replicable and clear patterns when you look at what's happening across a range of traits. If you put a lot of traits together, you can get these country-specific personality trait profiles that allow saying from which country somebody comes from. And yet the individual effect sizes making up these profiles are super small. Notice that there is an ambiguity. Well, in the first place, there are plenty of people who don't believe that the differences that we see are real at all. They think that they come from differences in translations and differences in response styles that different countries have and so on, which would mean that, again, culture doesn't matter. Everybody's got the same mean personality trait regardless of culture. If you assume that they're real, then you've got two possibilities. One is that these real differences affect the culture or that the culture affects these real differences, however small they may be. And Hofstede and I wrote a paper looking at the relation between dimensions of culture and our five-factor aggregate personality traits. And when we got to the discussion, since there was no question about what the associations were, the question was, which causes which? 
And after trying for a couple of months to come to something we could agree with, we gave up and wrote two discussions. One of them was Hofstede's interpretation of the data, and one of them was McRae's, switching the causal order. And of course, we didn't resolve that issue. That's It would be very difficult to even think of designs that would help us figure out what's really going on. But it's an interesting question. The discussion of these puzzling findings can take us to the next question, which would be about one of the most unique aspects of your theorizing about personality. And by this, I mean the idea that life experiences do not directly influence personality traits, unless they change somehow brain structure or functioning in some enduring ways, like taking drugs for a long time or having a brain lesion or something of that sort. And yet, for many listeners, I suspect non-psychologists and psychologists alike, it would be a truth to say that personality traits are shaped by experiences. Why do you think differently? First of all, I suspect that most people do not make the distinctions that I do between personality traits and characteristic adaptations. Certainly, life experience shapes characteristic adaptations. If somebody says, part of my personality is that I'm interested in jazz. Well, I would say that's not a basic tendency. It may come from a basic tendency, but it's basically something that you've learned because you live in a culture that has jazz and you've had experience with different things and this this appealed to you. Or maybe you learned it from your parents or whatever. So unless we make a distinction between traits and their expression and characteristic adaptations, our claim that experience doesn't change traits is going to be misunderstood. So your claim is that experiences do not directly influence the basic tendencies, which are more fundamental parts of personality, whereas experiences can shape and do shape characteristic adaptations or habits expressing personality suitably in the environment where the individual is. Yes. And the reason that we came up with this is exactly the kinds of puzzling findings that we're talking about. If life experience changes personality, you wouldn't expect stability coefficients over 10 years of 0.8. If life experience affects personality, you'd expect that twins raised together would be much more similar than twins raised apart. If experience shapes personality, you'd think that different cultures would have radically different personality traits, maybe different structure, maybe different levels. The fact that you don't see all those things leads to the idea that, well, maybe experience isn't what's operating here. And that was the basis for premise of five-factor theory, that there is no link between external influences and person-basic traits, except, as you say, through biological interventions. If you're in a car crash and you have brain damage, that's probably going to affect your personality. But that's not what most people think of when they think of experience. All the more so because it would be very hard to explain the normal variability between people, the, the sort of bell curve of traits using uh, accidents and, and car crashes and other sorts of that kind. I think your postulate that life experiences do not directly influence personality, it's probably a remarkably unpopular postulate, but, but I have to say I keep being surprised how hard it has been to empirically disprove that, even for the things that we might perhaps call characteristic adaptations. 
these robust effects of life experiences on personality trait measurements, which obviously mix basic tendencies and characteristics of patients, they are very hard to come by. Also, one finding I keep finding surprising is the lack of convergence between the personality traits of partners over time. You would expect that if you live with somebody for 10 years, 20 years, so on, you, you somehow adapt your personality to their personality, and yet it doesn't seem to be happening. But do you think that there are exceptions to this basic postulate that life experiences do not directly influence personality traits? And if there are, how strong do you think these exceptions can be in terms of effect sizes? The one thing that I've actually had some research experience with is depression. Consider bereavement. Bereavement is considered the most stressful event of normal life. And we once did a study of several thousand people measured, I think it was about 10 years apart. And during the course of it, a substantial number had lost a spouse. And so the question is, if we look at before and after, do we see differences in personality? Are they becoming more depressed in particular? Well, no. The great majority of people recover. Certainly, it's a stressful event. It's not something anyone wants to experience, but it doesn't change personality traits for most people. Mm -hmm. There are people who respond to a bereavement or other life circumstances by becoming clinically depressed, having a major depressive episode. When you have a major depressive episode, personality traits change. You become more neurotic, less extroverted, less open to experience, less conscientious. And if you then are treated, in the study I was working with, they were using antidepressant medication. About half the people responded over the course of six months to the medication. And when they did, their neuroticism scores dropped, their extroversion scores increased, their conscientiousness scores increased. So the psychological event of bereavement induced a disease process in the brain which changed personality. Now, in that sense, you can certainly say that life experience affects personality for some people occasionally. We would need to look at a lot of circumstances like that. Post-traumatic stress might be another example. Childhood sexual abuse might be another example. All of these are very interesting and important and informative cases, but they're extremely difficult to research because you almost never have prior measurements of personality. In this study that we did on bereavement, we had a baseline before the bereavement and then an outcome. You don't normally have that with people who suddenly become depressed or people who survive a hostage situation. So you have to make inferences about their post-personality. Is that different from what it was before? And there are ways that that could be studied. For instance, getting people who know the individual to rate their prior personality traits. That's been done on people with Alzheimer's disease, for instance. What was this guy like 10 years before the traumatic event happened? And now what is he like? That at least gives you a, some handle on what's going on. If you have a lot of that data, ideally you'd be able to say, there are these set of conditions of sufficient stress and intensity and duration that occur to these class of people that can change personality traits. And then we'd have a new postulate for FFT. But until we've got those kinds of data, for the large majority of cases, our very simple parsimonious model still works pretty well. 
the effect size is probably at the level of population cannot be very large because many of these events that you discussed, they are fortunately relatively rare. You mentioned childhood sexual abuse uh, and it could influence personality via depression, for example. But if you look at the correlation between childhood sexual abuse and, and later depression in the meta-analysis, it's roughly about 0.10. So it's not very huge to start with. It can, again, influence personality and other things at the tails of the distributions, but it's probably hard to use these events to explain the differences between most people, which is theoretically what we would probably be most interested in anyway, right? I think for many of us psychologists, we define our mission through helping people. And I think among personality scientists, this would often mean helping people to change their personality traits. For some reason, I suspect that you may be a bit skeptical about this mission. And if so, what do you think? How could personality trait scientists help people? You recall that Blydorn and colleagues wrote an article in the American Psychologist, and it was a very ambitious effort to say, well, Personality traits, as you point out, are related to important life outcomes, so we should be systematically modifying personality traits, and that will be great for society. That would be a wonderful thing if we could do that. As of now, we can't. We don't understand well enough about how to affect traits, even if it's possible. We don't know the psychological ways to do that. We know something about biological ways. If somebody's depressed, we can change their personality by giving them an antidepressant. What I wrote in response to that was a comment in which I said, we have to be very careful to make sure that if we do an intervention and we see a self-reported change, that we confirm that that really is a change, because there are a lot of artifacts that could explain it. You go to a program that's supposed to make you more conscientious and have to attend meetings every, every two days for three weeks. And then at the end of it, they ask you, are you more conscientious? Well, you've invested a lot of time and effort, and you're going to say, well, yeah, I think I am. But are you really? And do, do the people around you see that? Or is this simply a, an experiment or demand kind of effect? And there are perfectly good ways to do that. We can use observer ratings to see whether there is a validation of the self-reported changes. The interesting thing is that there are a handful of studies that have actually traced usually developmental changes by self-report and by observer rating, children's self-reports and their parents' ratings. And they don't agree all that well on the alleged changes. Sometimes the direction is different. Sometimes the timing is different. And we have no idea why that is true. We don't know whether the parents just don't really understand their children, or the children are too young, they don't understand their own personalities, or both. But we really need to do a lot of that kind of methodological research to find out what's going on with perceived changes before we're in a position to evaluate proposed interventions. If you're going to do something on a wide social scale, you know, start a, a course in assertiveness training in all the seventh grades in the country. You really want to know that you can predict the effect and that it's really there. Mm -hmm. And Blydorn and colleagues responded saying, we absolutely agree. And we think there ought to be multiple methods of measurement. And I'm all in favor of that. I hope that they continue to do research looking for these changes 
and assessing them in very conservative ways so that we're quite sure that we know what's going on. Yeah, this is a good point because we know a whole lot about the developmental patterns in personality traits in adulthood, how normatively people change in, say, their big five trait scores. And almost all of this research is based on people's self-reports. But when studies are also using the reports of other people to explore these normative changes, the changes seem much smaller. There is something definitely going on. Even if we do see reliable changes of interventions, for example, there will still be this problem of what intelligence researchers have called the transfer problem. And the change is very specific, but we would normally want the change to generalize to a whole lot of different life domains to be useful. But when we look at whether these changes actually transfer, they don't tend to transfer very far. So for example, there was a lot of excitement about 10 years ago about working memory training programs. And they found that if people train in a certain way, their working memory can indeed get better over time. But it became clear that the issue was that this training effect faded away if we started looking further away from memory alone to other cognitive skills, then the, the, the interventions had very little effect there. Do you think the same could apply to personality traits as well? That's certainly something that one would have to systematically investigate. We don't even have at this point well-established protocols for changing any trait that I know of. So we're not even in a position to assess how well the changes generalize to other things. There is a lot of enthusiasm for this project for changing traits. And as you say, it's because that would be a really nice thing to do for the individual and for society. We simply have to be very cautious about it. We ought not to assume that what we see on the surface is going to be large, or it's going to last, or it's going to generalize, or it's going to be observable by other people. We need to approach this with a very uh, skeptical attitude. I always think of Bayesian approaches because most psychologists think that experience affects personality and therefore their Bayesian expectations are if something works well. And of course, my Bayesian expectation is just the opposite. And so if something works, what I'm immediately thinking of is, are we sure Do we have multiple sources of evidence for it? Our prior expectations are different. But let me get back to another thing that you said, and that is that personality psychologists want to help people. And if they can't change personality traits, what can they do? And the answer is, well, there are lots of things they can do. You can change characteristic adaptations. And that's a lot of what goes on in, in counseling and in therapy fits into that role. Our relationship is a characteristic adaptation. And often people go into couples counseling and they find they have particular patterns of communicating, and they have particular assumptions about what the other, and a good counselor can suggest ways to say, well, let's relax that expectation, try thinking of it this way, find a different way of communicating. That isn't changing personality traits, but it's changing the relationship, and that can be an extremely important thing for people's lives. There would also be ethical issues around a wholesale program of changing individuals' personalities. I think there would be a substantial proportion of individuals who would ask others to keep their hands away from their personality. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that's true. It, I think that you get 
pretty general agreement that people would like to be less high in neuroticism. But if you asked about openness to experience, you would find huge divides. There are some people who'd say, we ought to teach everyone to be close to experience because it's too dangerous to have all these silly liberal ideas and wild speculations. Let's be conservative. And, and of course, there are other people who wouldn't have exactly this, the opposite argument. Maybe an option would be, and I think this is what people have been considering, is to not implement the wholesale sort of unidirectional intervention program where everybody's consensuousness ought to be increased or uh, neurotics decreased or agreeableness increased, but a program where individuals can choose which traits they want to change and in which directions. It would still give people that freedom and agency about their own personality and any changes in them if it was possible to change the traits. But speaking of children, what do you think about education? I mean, this is the most large-scale, persistent, uh, widespread intervention program in the whole of Earth. Most people have gone through this massive intervention program in their lives. Does education change personality? Actually, I think uh, Antonio Terracciano did something on that. There were some significant effects in a very large sample. They were very small, and I quite frankly don't remember what they were. But there we have the problem, of course, that almost everybody has some education. We don't have a control group. And if you look at things like the number of years of education, even in societies where that's an option, there are all kinds of pre-existing differences between people who end up in graduate school and people who end up flipping burgers. And it's not necessarily their earlier educational experience that determines whatever the differences are. What would be your top tips for young personality scientists? Well, as I think we've made it very clear in this discussion, there are many, many unresolved issues in personality psychology. It's not as though we've figured everything out. These issues of whether you can change, the issues of, of development and how it is perceived by self and others, genetics of personality. There's a conflict between what we don't know about the genome and what we do know about the heritability that needs to be resolved. Likewise, neuroscience, there's presumably an, a, something in the brain that's responsible for personality. We have only the vaguest notions of what those things are. So that's a whole fruitful thing. As we were talking earlier, people have limited options. If you've just gotten a PhD, you go out for a set of interviews and you hope that one or another of them selects you. And when they do, it's probably because they wanted a particular thing. We're doing stuff on health and smoking. And so we want somebody who knows personality and smoking. Well, if you're not particularly interested in smoking, what are you going to do? Turn down the job? Not very many people have that option. So a lot of what people's careers are is what's available. And that's true even of people who are highly skilled and have gone to graduate school and got degrees. You still don't get to do exactly what you want. Although I came pretty close to that. <laughs> I had the most fortunate job position in the world, I think. Most people don't have that. But one of the things that I have said before is you'll do whatever it is you need to do, but at least some of the time and in some of the ways, do the things you're really interested in. Carve out some space and some time for whatever particular issue identity or the self or whatever it is that you're interested in, spend some time with doing that. I think that will make your job a lot more tolerable. 
I think you're more likely to do your better work when it's something you're really interested in. And I think it also provides a good thing for the field because there'll be more variety. When research is driven by funding agencies, they have their own priorities. We're interested in Alzheimer's disease. So if you want to study personality, it's got to be personality and Alzheimer's disease. Okay, that's a useful thing to do. But if everybody does that, a lot of personality is going to be missed. So a certain amount of time set aside for whatever it is you really have your heart on. And also, perhaps for your next job, it puts you in a better position and nudges you closer to the kind of job you eventually want to have. Yes. This is a good thing to end with. Thank you very much for being part of this podcast. I think discussion was very interesting for me, and I'm sure it was also interesting to many of our listeners. You're welcome.